We are in the 75th Psalm tonight. We're going to read the entire Psalm. It's only 10 verses, so I think we can handle that standing for a short time. I promise you when we get to Psalm 119, we won't read the entire Psalm standing up. So it's only 172 verses, you know, so anyway. Um, Psalm 75. I'm reading out of the New King James Version of God's Word. Beginning with the inscription, to the chief musician set to do not destroy a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly the earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved I set up its pillars firmly, Selah. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one. And exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. And the wine is red. It is fully mixed. And he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. And Father, we pray that you would have your way in our hearts as we look at this psalm. Teach us, Lord. Lead us into your truth. As we look at these words written by Asaph, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in a very real and practical way. And so, Lord, have your way with our hearts Let the name of Jesus be lifted up and magnified during this time. And Lord, we just thank you. Thank you for bringing us together tonight. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. As we uh, move forward and looking here now at Psalm 75, uh, as you recall, in the last couple of Psalms, we noted that Asaph, Uh, has been the writer of the psalms. We're in uh, the midst of 11 psalms that have been written by Asaph, or perhaps um, one of the sons of Asaph, or someone from the house of Asaph, uh, a number of years later, perhaps. uh, That could be the case as well. But as we open up this psalm, we do see that it is to the chief musician set to not to... Uh, Do not destroy a psalm of Asaph, a song. And so uh, there are some who believe, who who, who think that Asaph, or actually a son of Asaph, someone from the house of Asaph, uh, during the reign of King Hezekiah, uh, may have written this, uh, when, uh, when the Lord God overthrew the king of uh, Syria, King Sennacherib, 
that we find in 1 Kings chapter 19. Of course, it could be uh, set to a number of victories that the Lord had brought to his people. Uh, could be written by Asaph himself looking forward to victories that he's going to continue to bring his people, even as he had brought victories to Israel uh, during the, the, the days of King David. Asaph, of course, being one of the uh, worship leaders uh, that served under King David. So we don't know exactly when it might be, but, but I think the thing that we want to get from this is that as we begin, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. Then in the ninth verse, we see more praises coming forward. But I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And then we, we see the reality of God being judge, that he is a faithful judge, that he's a righteous judge, that, that, that he always judges in, in a way that is upright, always, regardless of what he does. And the context here is that he is going to bring judgment upon his enemies, the enemies of Israel. Uh, and, and we can fast forward to, to our own hearts and our own lives, and this would be the case for us as well. He will judge our enemies. Now, for us, it's more like the idea of our enemies are those things perhaps people, but those things that will hamper our worship of God, hamper our obedience of God, uh, hinder us in our relationship with Him, you know, to, to, to tempt us away from the things of God. Those are our enemies, and they'd be speaking in a, in a spiritual sense, of course, more than anything for us, but God is going to deal with those things as, as well. And one of the things I think about is that, of course, we know that as uh, the Apostle John writes in his, in his letters, he, he mentions the idea of the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist on more than one occasion. And uh, he wrote then that the spirit of Antichrist was very much alive even then at that time. It's still, he's, th that spirit still is alive in the world today. And whenever we see things coming against the things of God, or whenever we see things in which we as the people of God are tempted to maybe, well, make an idol of something, that's the spirit of Antichrist. That, that's, that's the idea behind that, because an Antichrist spirit is anything that is going to cause a person to believe that from something or someone or some position or whatever it might be, that we think that is going to bless us in a way that only God can really bless us. The idea of Antichrist being instead of Christ or in place of Christ, not just simply against Christ. That's part of it too, but more than anything, in place of or instead of, of Christ. And so that spirit is alive and well. And, and so it's those kinds of things that our Lord does battle for us against today. The battle belongs to Him, doesn't it? But we... Uh, we need to do all we can to faithfully follow after him. And so we see here in the first verse, we, we've read it a couple times already, we give thanks 
To you, O God, we give thanks. And, uh, you know, um, what a coincidence that we're looking at this psalm on the eve of Thanksgiving. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. I mean, there there are a lot of psalms that start out with (laughs) being thankful to the Lord, right? But it does, I mean, it's fitting that we happen to be in this particular psalm that begins that way. And, and the, the second stanza of this first verse says, For your wondrous works declare that your name is near. So giving thanks to the Lord because of his wondrous works, because of the things that he has done for us. And in the context here in Psalm 75, as, as the writer Asaph, or one of his sons, a, a descendant of his rights, it's the idea of, the idea of the, his wondrous works are all those things that he already has done for Israel. The things that he's, he's, that he's done as he's gone before Israel and, and brought blessing to them. You know, wh- whether you're talking about uh, Abraham or Moses, you know, Moses uh, leading the people uh, 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 through the through, through the wilderness, and then Joshua leading the people uh, into the promised land. First, uh, through Moses delivering them from uh, from the the slavery in, in Egypt and all that, all his wondrous works, all the battles that he's won. You know, in, in David's day himself, uh, David before he was king as a boy, you know, t- t- uh, killing Goliath the way that he did. All these things, these are the things that are referred to here by the writer. All of his wondrous works, for your wondrous works declare. The works themselves speak, declare of the reality that God is near. The way it's worded here is that your name is near. Now we know that especially in the context of the writing of, 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 of Scripture during this time, whether it's the Old or the New Testament, you know, the, the name means something, you know. Uh, the, the idea of what the name actually means is something that is uh, pertinent here because this speaks of all the nature, all the character, all the attributes of God are in view here when we speak about his name. So all that he is, is shown and is proven to be near to us as he does his works for us, as he does his works on on our behalf, as he does his works for his own glory. And it's all for all those things on a consistent basis. Uh, One writer wrote this, the reason for rejoicing lies in the manifest presence of God proclaimed and celebrated in the stories of God's mighty acts. In remembrance and retelling of the history of salvation lies the comforting affirmation of God's closeness to his people. That's cool, huh? And that's true. You know, I mean, how, how many ways can we speak about the things of God? Well, we're going to get an opportunity to do that tomorrow. 
You talk about the things that God has done for us for which we are thankful. And these things show us, they themselves declare that, that God's name, his name in, in every attribute, all, all of his love, all of his mercy, all of his grace, all of his goodness, all of his kindness, all of his judgments, all of his power, all of his wisdom, all, all these things, they're always in action when he does anything. And naturally for us as believers, the primary work that he's done for us on our behalf is that he delivered us from our sin. That's the primary thing. But there's so many secondary blessings that he gives us in this world. And, you know, being Thanksgiving time, it is something that, that is to be rehearsed in our own hearts, you know, just to recall. I mean, you know, I, we as Christians, we shouldn't wait for Thanksgiving for that, right? <laughs> we shouldn't just wait for Thanksgiving. It's something that, is, that ought to be in our hearts all of the time. As we think about the name of God, it, it does bring to mind for me anyway, uh, uh, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 34, when God shows his glory to Moses, he puts him in the cleft of the rock, then he passes by, right? In, in chapter 34, verses 5 to 7, it says this uh, in the book of Exodus. Now, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. So he's proclaiming the name of the Lord as he says these things, right? The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So God in all of his mercy, mercy went mentioned twice. The only thing that's mentioned twice here is mercy. His, 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 uh, his grace, his, his long-suffering or his patience toward people, uh, his goodness, his truth, um, forgiveness, and his just and righteous judgments. You know, th this, these are things for which we praise and honor him. And in terms of his nature and his character, his attributes, um, the way that he ministers to us, you know, I, I can't help but think of, in the book of John, the seven I am statements of Jesus. When we see him saying, uh, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of this world, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. In all these ways, we see, God, uh, we see our Lord Jesus Christ representing these things in our lives. And so, as we see the psalmist writing, in your works, you declare that your name is near. In all these ways... He comes near to us. He comes near to us as the bread of life, as the light of this world, and so forth, as the way, the truth, and the life, right? This is who he is for us. And so we know that he's near. James writes that 
we are to draw near to God and he will draw near to us. And we draw near to God through our obedience to him, our submission to him, shown in obedience. You know, because as we honor him as God, as we treat him like he's God, and being God, certainly we are to bow to him, we are to submit to his lordship in our lives. Obedience is a part of that. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will, what? Keep my commandments. That's how we prove our love to him, is by keeping his commandments. And, and the word keep there, uh, spoken by Jesus, is more than obedience, but it's an attitude of mind and heart that results in obedience, but it is placing value on the word of God in which we, wanna, we want to guard it. The word keep, it speaks of like a sentry, you know, guarding something, guarding the Word of God. We guard the Word of God by obeying it. We guard the Word of God by showing other people it's a very, very valuable, important thing, so we obey it. That, that, that's, how that, that's how that works. But tomorrow is Thanksgiving, and we're not going to do tonight what we're going to be doing tomorrow morning. But it is a time to reflect on the things that we're thankful for. As we, and as we see these words here, the very first verse, again, we give thanks to you, God. Oh, God, we give thanks. Um, my bride and I are celebrating an anniversary today. It was November 23rd, 1969, 53 years ago, that I laid eyes on her for the very first time. We met 53 years ago today. Um, I don't want to take a whole lot of time, but I'll share, I'll share this with you guys. Um, I, I was a freshman at USC. Uh, I had some friends that I was hanging out with that weekend, this particular weekend, and uh, um, on Sunday morning, we planned to have a little like a pickup football game. There are only four of us. It was going to be like a two-on-two football game kind of a thing, but uh, we, we wanted to do this on a Sunday morning. We weren't believers yet at this time. Uh, I, w I, was, I was 17. Jeanette was 15. So I, I, I see some young ladies over here. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, not yet. You haven't met Mr. Wright yet, huh? Well, a, a, a young woman can do that. I mean, I would have a tendency to call a 15-year-old more a girl than a young woman, but a, a young woman, a young lady can do that at the age of 15. So, um, Dad, Dan, Jen, just keep your eyes open. I know you are, Dan. I know you are already. But yeah, she was only 15. But, so we, we, but we were uh, going to have this pickup game, and then one of the guys had a girlfriend, who was who we were going to go pick up, and she had a friend of hers with her. And we actually went, wound up going to Jeanette's house to pick them up. So I, I pull up in the in the in the driveway. I was driving a 1955 Chevy, and had the guys in the car, and we were going to pick up these two girls. One of them, Mike's girlfriend, the other, his girlfriend's friend. 
So we're sitting there in the, in the driveway, and uh, the girls come out, and I see them, and my eyes went right away to, to my honey, to Jeanette. She, I mean, she was just as the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, and she walked with such grace. I looked, loved the way she carried herself. I hope that's not Mike's girlfriend. And she, she wasn't. You know, I mean, I fell head over heels in love with her right away. I mean, I was 17, a freshman in college at that time. And, uh, yeah, I've been smitten ever since. You know, but, you know, I mean, that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm very, very thankful for. You know, and, and the 50-plus years that God has given to us, you know, 53 now, and I don't know how many more. Things are different now than they used to be, of course, with, the, with this disease that she's got. You know, and, and, and the dementia, and she's uh, immobile, you know, and, and it's a sad and hard thing to see, but God has given me 50 plus wonderful years with her, you know, and she has been and still is such a gift to me, you know, and God has used her in my life for all these years and still is still is using her in my life. On, um, amen, yeah. On, on, on Sunday, you know, Richard shared his testimony, you guys remember. Um, remember what he said that the Lord spoke to his heart when he was in the hospital, or uh, at the hospital, visiting Rose? The Lord told him this is all about Rose. Everything I've ever done in your life to change you is for this, so that you would be here with Rose right now. Remember? I thought that was very powerful. And guys, I, I, I'm the same way in, in regard to my honey. You know, when, when we met 53 years ago today, I'm just 17, and I'm going to go play football with my friends, and I see this beautiful creature, you know, and then I didn't know where that was going to lead, but at that moment, God knew what was going to be taking place 53 years later. He knew what was going to be going on in our hearts. He knew what was going to be going on in this horrible disease that my honey has. He knew that. And I believe strongly that he chose me to be here with her today. Not because I was such a great guy then, but because over 50 years he was going to do a, a work to change me into the, into the man who could care for her the way she needs to be cared for. Who could love her the way she needs to be loved. And uh, it's, it's an honor to be chosen to be a vessel like that. It's an honor to be able to care for her in this way. You know, she's, she is the same beautiful soul that all of you know. But she's just inside this body that stopped working right. You know? She still needs to be loved. It's an honor to love her. So she's still being used by God in my life 
in that way. You know, and I didn't know what was going to be taking place, but a couple years later we were married and had a child shortly after that. A couple years after that, the Lord draws us to himself and saves us and, and begins his work of changing us. And here we are today, changed, still in love, and the Lord is just doing a wonderful, wonderful thing. God is still at work. And you know, I, I've got to say, un understanding God's sovereignty and, and all that's involved with all that, as I was sharing with you, really helps me to embrace what's going on today, to embrace the hardship. Because God, in his goodness, in his love for us, in his grace and in his mercy, he's brought this to us. And it's just a, I think it's just a, a, a great way to see things. And I'm thankful that the Lord has brought all this to me. And, and I have to say that I, I didn't start thinking this way after Richard said what he did on Sunday. I was thinking this already, but I was just able to relate to what he had to say because I know exactly what he meant. This is why I've worked in you. And, and that's the case for all of us. God does his work in us so that he can use us. You know, um, didn't have this, this, this verse in mind. I don't have it in my notes, but I do think of Ephesians 2.10, which says this. I want to make sure I read it or quote it correctly so I'm going to read it. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship. I'm his workmanship. God has formed me to be the person I am today for my honey right now, right? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should walk in those good works. So wherever God places us, he's got some work for us to do, and he forms us. I am thankful to God for all these years, not just simply for the blessings that I've received from God through my honey and in my relationship with her, but for now too, because you know, if I was the same guy I was 53 years ago, I don't think I'd be around. But I'm not. He changed me. I'm his workmanship. He made me what I am. And now I can love her the way she needs to be loved with God's love. I think that's a cool thing. And, and I just love the idea of it. And so I embrace the whole situation. Now, going on. Okay, that was the first verse. I promise you the other nine verses aren't going to take that long. <laughs> Verse 2 and 3, when I choose the proper time, and I note that these, that these have quotations around them, right? So this is God speaking all the way through verse 5. It's, it's God speaking. Some, some think that maybe somebody else is speaking in verse 4 and 5, but I, 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 I believe the Lord is speaking through during the whole time, all four, four of these verses. Well, verse 2 and 3 first, when I choose the proper time or 
the appointed time, I will judge uprightly. So now we see the reality of God being a judge and him acting as a judge, judging, coming into play here. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly, Selah. The appointed time, or the proper time, God knows the right time for everything. Uh, it used to be a, a song that we used to sing. I, I hear it fairly regularly now because I, I play the old Maranatha music a lot. I want my, my honey to, to, to hear those, those words. I mean, they, that music was so special to us back in, you know, in the 70s after we first got saved and into the 80s when we got involved with Calvary chapels and all. But, um, yeah, there's a song called In His Time. You know, he makes all things beautiful in his time. You got, anybody remember that song? Yeah. Um, obviously, it's biblical, but his time is the right time. My time and your time is not the right time. His time is. You know, I mean, how many times have you grown uh, yeah, impatient with God not responding? to a prayer that you've prayed or him not responding to a prayer that you prayed the way that you wanted him to respond. It could go either way. But his timing is always perfect. He knows exactly what to do, exactly how to do it, and exactly when is the best time for it to take place. And you know what? I don't and you don't. We just don't know. What we're doing is operating on feelings at that point, on emotions. Yeah, because we want a situation to change or something, you know? That, that's what we'll do. But God always, always is right. Uh, he always does his work with perfect timing and with uprightness, or with righteousness. Always. Anytime God does anything, all of his nature, all of his attributes, all of his character, anything we can say about who he is, it's just a whole idea of him being judge, as well as him being loving and merciful and gracious, it all works together. You know, he, he never judges anything even the idea of, you know, destruction that can come to a nation or to a person because of judgment, because of their, they're basically ignoring him, that's done in righteousness. And love and mercy and grace are all a part of that as well. Somehow, it always is. Because he never takes off his righteousness hat and, and puts on his judgment hat. You know, he doesn't do that. He's got all his hats on all the time, so to speak. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's what he does, always. Psalm 145, verses 17 and 18, read this way. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious 
in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. We see there in verse 18 that if we want God to be near to us, then he'll be near to those who call upon him in truth. In truth, not according to our fantasies, not according to what we think is right, but in truth. You know, that, that's at the end of the service on Sunday, I, I shared out of uh, John chapter 1 when John writes that Jesus came in, in grace and in truth. You know, he, he, he always deals in truth, you know, and that's so freeing for us. We don't have to pretend that we're not who and what we are because he's ready to pour his grace out, out upon us. We need his grace, don't we? We need his mercy, but he always works in that way. We're calling upon him in truth. But the Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. We all go through difficult times. And I was just sharing a moment ago, and you guys know about what, what my honey and I are going through. But you know what? As the Lord brought us to this place, it's something that is righteous. It also is gracious on his part. I'll have to admit, I don't always agree with that in the sense of the difficulty of it. How can this, how, this doesn't feel like grace to me, right? You know what I mean? And we, we all can do that with the various difficulties that we might go through, the various things that we experience. This doesn't feel like God's grace. I thought God's grace brought comfort and peace and hope and things of that nature. And, 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 and well, it, it does. Because for the very reason that I was talking about it earlier and, and God's part in bringing us, you know, Jeanette and I together and using me to minister to her now as a changed person and all. I mean, and even what's going on now with her continuing to be used by God in my life as this is changing me to become even more into the image of, of Christ. I pray so. That's what I want. And if that's what I want, and if God uses affliction to bring that, then the affliction itself is a gracious gift from God to bring to us his purpose for us and what we want anyway. Because I want to become more like Jesus. I just don't like that it has to hurt for that to happen. You know what I mean? But that's the case. That's the case. And so, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. He is gracious in all his works. You know, um, and I'll share with you even the reason that this verse is something that means something to me is because this was shared with, with me and, and, and other men um, by Willie. He said that, I'm not sure if all of you are familiar with that, a number of you are, I'm sure, but he has shared with us that when his wife passed away, uh, the very next morning, he, and he has said he's never gone through anything ever 
as painful as that, as emotionally painful, painful in his heart. Um, next morning, he opened up his Bible, doing his devotion, and read this verse. All, for the Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. That particular verse. And he said, he just closed up his Bible and he said, okay. Okay, what a great response. Okay. This is what God says. It's, it's righteous and gracious. Okay. Because, isn't it true, it, it, what we are feeling, what we are thinking, isn't what comes down to what is true. It's what God says. That's how we know what is true. That's how we know. And if God tells me that his work in my life is a work of his grace and a work of his righteousness, amen. So be it. That's what it is. And I don't have to feel like it is in order for it to be so. Because God said it, right? Those are some very powerful lessons for us to learn. Going on, we see in verse 3, the earth and all his... See, we got through verse 2, not as long as verse 1, but it was... Verse 3 won't be as much time as that, honest. Anyway, verse 3, um, the earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. And, and what we see uh, uh, the Lord speaking of here is the... Uh, D dissolving of the physical earth, but it could be the d dissolving of other things as well. But we, but we see here, it's all, all its inhabitants are dissolved. Now, exactly what is taking place here? Now, the, 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 the thrust of this psalm is God bringing judgment upon his enemies and upon the enemies of Israel in particular. Um, and, and so, you know, Victory over other nations. Is that what he's speaking about? The earth being dissolved and all the inhabitants of that nation being dissolved. Or, or is it speaking of the entire earth? Well, Second Peter 3 verse 10 says this. Peter writing says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in, in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and there's going to be a destruction of the earth as it exists today before the new earth is created. And this is what this is talking about. So th this could be a, a, a prophetic reference to what's going to be taking place at the very end with some, at the same time, reference to the utter destruction that's going to come upon God's enemies. This dissolving, uh, or some translations say melting away. And that, that's actually what we see, the words that we use, that we see in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. But with the idea of hearts being melted before God we, we see that in Joshua chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. This is that passage in which we see Rahab uh, being used by the Lord to uh, shelter the
the spies that went into Jericho, if you'll recall. And in verse two, chapter, chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, there in Joshua, Rahab is speaking, and she says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain, in it, remain anymore any courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And so the, the idea of God himself, the God of gods, the only true living God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he working on behalf of his people in bringing judgment against those who are the enemies of his people and his own enemies causes the hearts of those who are of outside of that, other nations in this case, to melt. And in Rahab, it caused her to see, as she said at the end of verse 11, for the Lord your God, Yahweh, your God, not the gods that we worship, your God, Yahweh, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So God doing his work, and, and again, you know, his wondrous works declare that his name is near. The, the works that he does, he, they, they say something, they tell something about who he is. And prayerfully, guys, for all of us, as we live our lives, people see him at work in our lives, and as they do, become convinced as we not only are, um, show others that God is at work by the way that we live and the things that he's doing, but we continually talk about him who he is, our love for him, but especially his love for us, the salvation that is ours and anyone who will turn to, to Jesus, right? Here, here we see Rahab turning to God, the God of Israel, because he, she sees that he's really God. He does things that the idols that we're worshiping don't do that are mocked by the prophets, by the way, right? Jeremiah and Isaiah both write about how these, um, these idols that, I mean, they're standing and they have to, they have to build little uh, uh, platforms for them to stand on so they don't fall over. And they have noses they don't smell, ears they don't hear, eyes they don't see, feet they can't walk. But yet you bow down to them and pray, pray to them to save us. I mean, how silly is that? That's kind of the idea of what an idol is. It's, it's silliness, futile, foolish to follow them. And it's foolish to think that anything in this world can bring to us peace of heart. You can have a million dollars a month income that's not going to bring peace to your heart. It'll cause your bank account to grow. 
which you could lose at a moment's notice. But it's only Jesus. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the one that brings us peace, right? It's idolatry to think that, you know, the, the right job, the right amount of money, living in the right house, having the right friends, having the right position, you know, when I finally make it, I'll, I'll be good. No. We're only good in Jesus Christ. Verses 4 and 5. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. And basically what God is doing here is just speaking to the, to the proud and the arrogant person. Um, lifting one's horn, as we see there in verse 5, don't lift up your horn on high or lift up your horn to the heavens. You're lifting up your horn, that's basically like exalting in your own strength. The horn re represents strength. So uh, that, that's, what is, that's what that's speaking about, lifting up the horn. And, and um, James Montgomery Boyce wrote this. He said that lifting one's horn against heaven is the equivalent of shaking one's fist in God's face. That, that's what it's like. But it speaks of strength. Proverbs 6, this is a passage that you guys are familiar with, verses 16 to 19. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Now we can take a lot of time to tear that apart. We don't want to do that tonight. But... We want to notice that the first one in the list is a proud look. Pride tops the list of the things that God hates. Things that are an abomination to him. Do we consider when the pride that is in all of us, when it wells up, and we act accordingly, do we consider that that thing that we're doing, the way that we're acting, the things that we're saying, maybe we don't even say them, maybe we just think them, because of that pride that's in us, that's something that is an abomination to the Lord, you know? Do we consider that? I think it would probably be a good thing to do that. Continuing on, verse 6. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. Promotion is another word for exaltation there. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. So this idea of promotion or exaltation. One writer by the name of Bateman writes this. The word promotion here is used in a very expressive way. It means the desire of self-advancement. 
from the Hebrew word harim, and would teach us that all our inward schemes and outward plans cannot gain for us advancement unless based upon the fear and love of God. All these plans that we make to, to get ahead, you know, unless it's of the Lord, it'll be fruitless. He's the one that exalts. Uh, he's the one, as verse 7 says, being judge, he puts down one and exalts the other. Uh, in Daniel chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, Daniel speaking of God, and he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. So God is the one who promotes. He's the one who, who exalts. We can't do anything about making sure that we become exalted. But we are to humble ourselves in, the, in, in his sight, and then, and then he will be the one who lifts us up, right? We, we, we see that in the Proverbs. We see that in the book of James. You know, that, that's just a principle by which we, as followers of Jesus, need to follow. Humble ourselves, under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up at due time, in due time, at the right time. Again, can't be our time, it's his time. In due time, in the right time. And we can be humbly serving him and thinking and waiting for him to lift us up, but if we're waiting for him to lift us up, is it because our service to him is, has become a tool in our own minds so that we can be lifted up rather than really wanting him exalted and him praised and him glorified and him honored and not humble before him, serving him because he's God and we honor him because, you know, I mean, that, 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 those are some thoughts that we have to consider, I think. Verse 8 For in the hand of the Lord, okay, so the, the context is God being the judge. He puts down one and raises up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Now the context here is that this cup is a cup of judgment, a cup of wrath, God pouring out his wrath upon nations. It can also speak of personal judgment, a judgment to an individual as well as a nation. Uh, but the cup itself, if it's just simply a cup, uh, we, we are made aware of the kind of cup it is because of the context here. There also are, are cups of blessing. A cup is just an instrument, and, and God will fill it with either blessing or with his wrath, you know, depending on the situation, right? 
So th- th- that's what we see here. Remember Jesus when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, he asked the Lord, he asked his Father to remove this cup from me. You know, um, but then he went on to say, of course, your will be done and not my own. But Father, remove this cup from me. What cup was that? It was a cup of the wrath of God that he was going to bear because of the sin of man. It's a cup of wrath. In Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16, Jeremiah writes, For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. So speaking of the judgment that he's going to bring on these other nations uh, as he uh, brings victory to Israel over them. Um, Actually, not victory. To, that, that, that's not correct. They're, they're going to bear the brunt of God's fury just simply because of their own, uh, um, their own wickedness. But then there's a personal judgment also, as I mentioned. Revelation 14, verses 9 to 11. This is heavy stuff right here. Then a third angel followed them. Of course, John writing... Um, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's not a comforting passage to read at all, is it? But I I go to this to show the idea of the cup of wrath that is going to come upon individual people, basically, in a very in a very basic way, is speaking of those who basically turn their backs on God. Those who will not submit to God. And, you know, as we're sitting here tonight, coming to a Bible study, listening to these words, you know, it's a sobering thing. And tomorrow being Thanksgiving, um, as we gather with family and friends, you know, um, there are probably going to be some people that we are celebrating Thanksgiving with who have not yet bent their knee to Jesus to worship him. And as much as we don't want to think about it, this is going to be the end for anyone who never does bend their knee to Jesus, to bow before him, to worship him. It's a heavy thing. It's a heavy thing. 
we can be thankful that God has called us to himself. But we're also reminded, and I pray that as we think of this, and maybe tonight as we go home, before we go to bed, or maybe in bed, you know, before we go to sleep, you know, just pray for those who need the Lord Jesus that are in our family or friends. Ask him to use us in their lives, maybe tomorrow if we're going to see them, to somehow um, bring his mercy and his love to them. You know, and we don't have to tell them what Revelation 14 says necessarily, but maybe the Lord will lead us to do that. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, Heaven and hell both are real. You know, God is real. The devil is real. Righteousness and wickedness are real. The reality of every person spending eternity in one of two places is real. Either in the presence of God or out of his presence in the lake of fire, which is, was prepared for Satan and his followers. And there are many people who are following after Satan, not realizing that that's what they're doing. Um, because they've bought into his lies and his deceit. The cup of wrath that's going to come upon the whole earth. Uh, sometime I believe not in the too distant future. Because if the rapture, well, I mean, actually it's going to be taking place at least a thousand years from now. You know, because it's at, the, it's at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ that all this is going to be taking place. But, um, it's during this lifetime that our eternity is determined. Asaph, Asaph then writes in verse 9, But I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And that's a blessing for us. You know, we are going to be praising God forever. Psalm 145, we quoted from it already, but the first three verses of that verse, of that psalm, read this way. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will, I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And, and, and that's what we're going to get to do through all eternity, guys, is just bless him and praise him forever. And we'll, we'll be serving him somehow as members of his kingdom. We will we'll have... Uh, some duties, some role to play, some things to do in our service to him. You know, uh, but as we do so, we'll be praising and worshiping him. We'll be extolling him. We'll be blessing his name forever and ever, understanding that his greatness is unsearchable. And that tells me that even when I see him face to face, his greatness is unsearchable. I'll see so much more than I see today. I'll have much greater understanding than I have today but I won't fully understand even then because my finite mind will not be able to comprehend it all. All of his greatness and all of his majesty and all of his glory. 
We just won't be able to contain it. And so we sing songs like, I can only imagine. Because we, we don't know how we're going to respond. But we will declare. You know, the context being God's judgment, we will declare the righteousness of God as he judges, the righteousness of God as he, as he does things. Um, whether it's, it is a judgment upon a nation or whether it's just some act in delivering his people. You know, uh, we will declare all that he does in all of his wisdom, goodness, grace, and mercy, all the acts that he does, you know, because everything he, he does is righteous. Every, every act that he commits is done out of his grace. And we'll declare it. And finally, verse 10, this, the psalm ending, all the horns or all the strength of the wicked, I, also, I will also cut off. This, of course, is God speaking here. But the horns of the righteous, the strength of the righteous shall be exalted. Strength. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29, the Apostle Paul wrote this, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. We're those foolish things, guys, right? And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. We are those weak ones and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. We're called to be humble before him. We, we spoke of that earlier. You know, uh, humble yourself in the sight of the mighty, and under, under the mighty hand of God and he will, he will lift you up, right? Um. And really, the, the, the humility that is called for is nothing more and nothing less than simply acknowledging that God is God and I am not. God is God and he deserves to be praised and worshipped as God. So I bow before him as God I, and he speaks to me and... I move, I do the things that he says because he's God and, and I'm his creation. I'm his child. He saved me. Out of thankfulness, I, I obey him. I worship him. Out of thankfulness, out of gratitude for what he's done and who he is, I bow before him. And even the strength that I have as this psalm ends, the, the strength or the horns or the strength of the righteous shall be exalted. It's not my strength, it's his. It's his. As, as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, and, and the, the, the armor, the, the Christian's armor that we wear, you know, he, he, he says that, that, that we're to stand in the strength and in the might of the Lord. Because our own strength is not enough. And so, so we exalt him. We honor him. We obey him because 
of who he is. And Father, we pray that you would have your way in our hearts as we look at these passages, Lord, this, this chapter, this psalm. Lord, one that calls us to humble ourselves in humility to bow before you, acknowledges the reality of our worship of you and praise of you through all eternity, forever and ever. It calls us to give thanksgiving as well to you. Thankful to you for what you have done. And thankful for what you are doing and thankful for what you're going to be doing in the future. Lord, you always have worked among your people. You always will. Sometimes we see it more clearly than at others. But you're always at work. Might you be praised because of it. Might you be glorified in our lives because of it, Lord. And we just worship you now. Have your way. And Lord, might we enjoy a wonderful Thanksgiving tomorrow as we begin the day coming together here. And then, oh Lord, might we declare your works tomorrow. Thank you, Lord. We love you and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand, guys. Nat's going to lead us in a final song and then dismiss.